0: Welcome to Ticket Splitters, a Grassroots Midwest podcast. My name is Seth Burroughs. I'm Outreach Coordinator here at Grassroots Midwest. Today I'm joined by Chris Martin, Assistant Ingham County Prosecutor uh, since 2015 and a recently elected member of the East Lansing School Board. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Uh, So I wanted to bring you on because you're relatively new to Michigan, and I thought it would be refreshing to get an outsider's perspective on the criminal justice system here, reforms that you think would be helpful, as well as your recent election, and your general goals in electoral politics. Um, so let's start at the beginning. You're originally from Texas, correct? Yeah, from Dallas, Texas. Okay. So what, what was your path from Dallas to Lansing?
1: Well, you know, I never knew that I was going to end up in Michigan. I'd never set foot in Michigan before right. 2015. Um, but when I was growing up, I knew that I wanted to get out of Texas. And so
0: I went <laughs> to college
1: at the University of Texas at Austin and then... Um, when I graduated, I worked on Capitol Hill for a couple of years. I moved to Washington, D.C., worked for Lloyd Doggett. He's a yeah. Democrat from Texas.
0: Blue Dog. Blue, no, he wasn't a Blue Dog. No, he's in the Pelosi. Yeah, he's a for, liberal.
1: Yeah, he's a, he's a great member of Congress. He's been there since 1994. I happened to be there in a kind of a frustrating time for Democrats because Tom DeLay was the majority leader. Right. And so a lot of our priorities weren't being heard or even brought to the floor. I did that for a couple of years. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed being in Washington, D.C., getting out of Texas. But um, in that process of being in Washington, I started to gain some interest in education policy, and that was when I decided to become a teacher. And then I became a teacher for four years, and I taught in New York City public
0: schools. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. So I st- I started with the Teach for America program and then continued teaching after that. And then after I had taught for a little while, I went to law school at the University of Virginia. And since then, I've been a lawyer. So I started practicing in Virginia, in the Charlottesville, Virginia area right. for four years, uh, a little bit of criminal defense work and a little bit of just general practice legal work. And my wife was finishing her Ph.D. at the University of Virginia. And when she graduated, she really wanted to get into academia, and she sort of took a flyer applying to Michigan State, and in her field, uh, teacher education, Right. Michigan State's the number one program in the country, and so we really didn't expect to even get a call back from them. Right. And when the interview process started, it started to get real that maybe she was going to be a good fit for Michigan State, and that maybe our lives were going to change, and so In 2015, she accepted the job here, and I came along at first a little reluctantly, but as soon as we were on the ground in East Lansing, fell in love with it and so happy to be here, and we're just looking forward to many years in the community.
0: That's awesome. Um, let's let's go back a bit, just because I didn't. I don't think I knew that you taught in New York City. My wife's a teacher here in Lansing, and I actually have a friend from high school who still teaches in New York. So, what was that experience like? It was
1: eye opening. Yeah, I <laughs> um, bet. that's hard. I did teach for America at first, and uh, it's a two year commitment, and you really don't come in with the kind of teacher preparation yeah. that a traditional teacher has. Sure. So you have to improvise a lot and wing it a lot. I had I had a lot of success in my first couple of years, but I also had a lot of frustration. Um, I had enough success that I stuck with it for a while yeah. afterward. Right. And the the thing I remember most was not I don't remember any trauma from teaching, but I remember after a couple of years teaching in New York City, I took a job at a school in Virginia. Right. And it was a just. Socioeconomically, a very different school. And when I was in Teach for America, a lot of my colleagues would talk about how they cried every day because of things kids said or things that they witnessed. I never cried. I'm not that kind of a person. But after my first day of teaching at my new school in Charlottesville, Virginia, I realized where I was now and where I was coming from. And that was the first time I ever cried about a school. Um, In a good way. Well, you saw that there's a huge number of kids... That are systematically denied opportunities. Oh yeah, I mean that's and, that happens
0: here in Lansing now.
1: Oh for sure, yeah, and it happens in East Lansing too. Yeah, um, we have great schools, but we we can do better. And yeah, so that was that was eye opening. You know, obviously it was eye opening being there on the ground for the two years that I was in New York City. But it was even more eye opening when I went to a school that was really at operating at a high level. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, it's a it's a tough game for sure. Back to when you got into Michigan, um, you joined the prosecutor's office in 2015. And since then, you've been led by three different prosecutors and Stuart Dunnings, Gresham Whitmore, and Carol Seaman, who is currently the prosecutor. Um, can you talk a little bit about your experience working in the office and sort of differences in leadership style between those three? Oh, certainly. Yeah. So when I
1: moved to Michigan, I knew I wanted to apply to a prosecutor's office. And it worked out that there was an opening in the Ingham County office. Just because most of my experience was in courtrooms in Virginia. Right. And believe it or not, it's very different practicing between different states. Right. And so I had experience as a lawyer, but not as a Michigan lawyer. And I thought, well, if I'm in a prosecutor's office, I know I'm going to have to go to court four or five times a week. Right. I'm going to have different kinds of trials, and I'll really get some experience in a short period of time. And I was lucky that right when I moved to town, they posted a job. I accepted the job and I was hired by Stuart nuttings Right. Um, Stuart, I didn't have much of a relationship with him because we now know that he was kind of on his way out. Right. When I started, but I always found him to be courteous, professional, uh, you know, a good leader in the office. Right. Um, and it's – you know, it's such a shame about all of his demons that we came to learn about. What I knew about Stuart in the office, as a leader of our office, he was perfectly capable. Right. And people worked for him. He surrounded himself with really good people. And a lot of those people are still in our office. So we had, we had we had a good team. And then right when Stuart had his legal troubles and he was arrested, he didn't resign right away. Right. And so we had this weird period of flux where... And we just—I I know the date's like tattooed on my brain, <laughs> March 14th. Yeah. Stewart gets arrested, and we're just everybody in the office is just like,
0: "What the so heck?" He's still, it's... he's still in the office.
1: He's working. Well, no, they locked At... him out. Oh, they did. They—they—they—I okay. they, um, think that they uh, disabled his key card oh, okay. that he swipes sure. into the door. But he—he's an elected official. You know, you can't—you can't fire him. Yeah. You know, you can—you can indict him and do whatever you want. But like, he was just—he was still our boss, even though. He wasn't communicating with anybody in the office. He was basically locked out of the office. Yeah. And we had this period, probably four or five months, without any prosecutor in a leadership role. Now, fortunately, we had that team that Stewart had surrounded himself with. Right. We had a second-in-command in the office who was very good and now works in the Whitmer administration. Sure. Her name was uh, Lisa McCormick. She was a great administrator of the office and uh, – was able to keep the operations running and a lot of lawyers that took the responsibilities of the office and prosecution really seriously. And so those folks really stepped up during that time. And that was kind of when I came of age in the office. It was in that weird period when we didn't have a boss. And then uh, we were really fortunate in that summer when Gretchen Whitmer was appointed and she was such a breath of fresh air coming into our office. She was... You know, we didn't know what to expect right. because we didn't, We knew that she had political ambitions and we knew that she was a well-respected state legislator, but she didn't have much of a record in court. Right. Um, and she got involved right away and she really took inventory of what was working in the office and what wasn't working in the office and set some achievable goals during her time there yeah. that really, you know, she could have just run out the clock for the six months or however long sure, she was I mean, there. I'm
0: sure people viewed her as a placeholder to some degree.
1: Yeah. And uh, you know, and I think that she would acknowledge that, that was the that was the arrangement, but she really did a great job of leading our office and doing the work of the prosecutor's office until we could get it more permanently. And then in uh, 2016, Carol was elected. Yeah. And Carol Seaman is our current boss. Carol is is wonderful to work for. She's a visionary person, and so she has big policy goals. And so much of what we do in the office, our day-to-day decisions, are working toward goals that are really aimed at fair and just prosecution and undoing some of the systemic abuses that prosecutor's offices, not our office in particular, but just prosecutor's offices in general, have been accused
0: of over many, many years. Right. So there's been a recent push in the legislature to reform our our criminal justice system. Specifically, there's a proposal to raise the age of adult criminal liability from 17 to 18, meaning Michigan would no longer automatically prosecute 17-year-olds as adults. And then there's another bill that would require uh, a secure conviction prior to taking ownership of private property through the use of civil asset forfeiture. So just a couple of examples of things that are, are in the pike for the legislature. So kind of want your thoughts on those and then some other opportunities where you think there should be reforms in Michigan.
1: There's – I think that those are the two big ones that you hit on. The raise the age is an important issue because we're one of a very few states where we prosec- we automatically prosecute 17-year-olds yeah, as a states. Yeah, it is – and it's a shame because there's plenty of research, especially with young men, that says that your your brain's not fully developed right. until you reach age 23, age 24. And if that's the case – and we're treating 17-year-olds as adults, then we are prosecuting children. And we're sticking children with forever criminal convictions that are going to forever impact their lives, their ability to get jobs, their ability to go to college, get consumer credit, all sorts of things. So that is – it's disappointing. But I also need to say that, you know, they're – I deal with a lot of 17-year-olds because – Unfortunately, there's there is an issue with some gangs in our community and they're mostly made up of 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old young men and it is very dangerous when you have a 15 or 16-year-old with a gun. Sure, because they don't have that risk analysis that a more mature person has and they don't obviously they usually don't have training with weapons and so there is a balance we have to strike. I think that I would support raising the age to 18, Yeah, but I believe that just about every state and the and federal law allows certain convictions to be – allows certain juveniles to be tried as adults for certain crimes. Yeah, And so we need to raise the age. We need to have a thoughtful policy discussion about it, but I absolutely agree with raising the age for nonviolent offenses, offenses that don't involve uh, sexual misconduct, right. those kinds of things. There's a couple other issues. You mentioned – civil forfeiture. Yeah. And that's when when police take possession of property, usually cash or cars in a in a prosecution for drugs right. is often the case. And they say, "Well, this cash must have been gained because somebody was selling drugs." And then they just forfeit it to the police department. Right. And uh, I would I think that's abusive. I think it leads to terrible incentives for people who are doing hard work on the streets as police officers. And so I would – I I support every reform we've made to date in our civil asset forfeiture jurisprudence. And I think that we can do more. I think that it should – we shouldn't forfeit it until there's a conviction. And I think we need to greatly limit the category of things that are forfeited. And there needs to be a nexus between we can prove beyond a reasonable doubt – that this asset was only obtained because of illegal conduct. I think that's the way we have to approach it. Because if we're just stealing from people to, you know, balance a budget for a police department or a community, I I think that that's, it's
0: abusive and it's wrong. I was working for a politician who was based out of Washington state. And this is when there were earmarks in Washington still, right? Um, So, Every year, I, I would, there was a task force, a drug task force that would um, apply for funds. And they, you know, they would say, they would you know, put a proposal in front of us. And usually it was really good. And we had a good re- relationship with those folks. And I met with them a bunch of times and went in and watched their operation, like an undercover video of what they were doing. And it was really cool to see. And they needed a lot of expensive equipment to do what they did. And they... You know, where they were relying on getting a federal grant of $250,000 every year to keep their operation running. Mm-hmm. And then your marks are gone. So then what do you do? You you have $250,000 that's not going to come into your budget. So how many people are you going to have to, to lay off and cut? Or, and, they, and I, they didn't do this, but as an example, yeah, yeah, you have to find ways to get that revenue so you can keep your operation up and running. So do you, are you, t- are you quicker to seize assets and, and cash to, uh, essentially fund your operation? You know, this was, this was seized, um, you know, doing illicit activities and now it's, and now it's ours. And that's, yeah,
1: I think that's a, it really does put the problem into focus and the, the moral issue with it. I, I should say that I'm, I'm not aware of any local police sure. department right. that would try to balance their budget with civil forfeiture. Yeah. Um, yeah we do a little bit of it, but not a lot of it. And we do have stricter standards for the types of cases we would pursue than would be required under Michigan law. Right. So we we do take it seriously. And I know that we have very qualified people in our office who evaluate these civil, af- civil asset forfeiture cases. Another thing in... Michigan law that I'd like to see reformed. And I I should say, I really like the criminal justice system in Michigan. It's not perfect. But coming from Virginia, where I began my career, Michigan is a lot more progressive. And there are features of our system here in Michigan that give young people, give first-time offenders more chances to reform themselves before you stick them with a permanent record. One example that comes to mind for me is the HYTA program, or we call it HIDA for short. Okay. um, The Holmes Youthful Trainee Program. And what it basically says is somebody who's convicted of a crime before their age 24 birthday, so 23 and younger, can have that crime removed from their public record um, if the prosecutor and the judge agree to it. And so when you have young people get in some trouble for, you know, like things that young people do when they're young and stupid. Yes stealing, and um, you know, minor, these sorts of indiscretions, it doesn't follow you for the rest of you. And we didn't have that in Virginia. And I I think that it's a really great program here. What I'd advocate for is expanding that program. Uh, Not to say that just anybody can take advantage of it at any time, but if you get to be, what happens if you're age 24 and you have your first criminal offense? Shouldn't you get a bite of the apple too? The kid who's, Two days younger than you, who hasn't yet turned yeah. twenty-four, just got gets lucky, in. right? Yeah, and so I would, I would support something, some sort of legislation where you get one deferral of a criminal case if it fits into certain categories. Yeah. Obviously, we're not talking about violent stuff. We're right. not talking about sex. We're talking about indiscretions. We're talking about people who make terrible decisions about money and things like that. Right? Um, that crosses into the criminal realm. Let's give people a chance to reform themselves.
0: Let's give restorative justice options, and it shouldn't follow you forever. So, I want to transition a little bit into you personally and your recent uh, election to the East Lansing School Board. I understand that was your first kind of foray into <laughs> politics.
1: I, I, yes, I ran for the student body president of my law school class. You did. Yeah, I won that election. That was that was my first two election. for two. Then. Yeah, two for two. Nice. But, yeah, so this is my first time to be on a real ballot that's not in a law school cafeteria. Uh,
0: before we get into the, the general mechanics of your race, what was, the, what was the spark that sort of led you to want to run, especially being new to the area? Well, yeah, I love politics, and
1: I always have. So I knew that I was interested in getting involved in local politics. Yeah. From the time I moved to Washington, D.C., I always knew I wanted to do it. The, the question is always, where do I fit in? You know, what yeah. does my background, where can I have an impact in the community? And just my background as a teacher, my background as an attorney, I realized that, you know, I could do great work on the school board. I also have four year old who will start in the East Lansing Public Schools this August. And my wife and I are both very serious about education and we want him to have the educational opportunities that we had. And so the East Lansing School Board became a no brainer. I, did some volunteer work when we had our 2017 bond election, okay. where knocked on some doors, got to talking about the schools, started to get a sense of like the issues that were important to people, right? And I also got to realize the impact these new school buildings were going to have on the learners in the community. And that was enough to get me excited to to see the project through. And I'm happy to say that we're going to open the first of those two new schools this August. So August 2019, we'll open two new elementary schools. And then this summer, we're going to knock down two more elementary schools and start rebuilding. In the next three years, you'll see five new East Lansing elementary schools that the voters approved in 2017. And that's just an amazing turnaround from the time the voters say, we want this. To having these new schools built and operational and delivering such a better experience to our community. And I'm hoping that it will also have the effect of when people like my wife and I came to East Lansing, we had people tell us, East Lansing is a nice community, but the taxes are high. You should really look at Okemos because the schools are great and the taxes are cheaper. And I love Okemos. We go there all the time. But that makes one of us. <laughs> <laughs> but we really wanted to live where in a community where my wife could walk to work. Right. Where it's a real city. Yeah, it's a great. It's, it's a, a community. Yeah, it's a great community. And when we bought our house, one of the selling points was that there was a school, an elementary school, just a couple blocks down the road. Now it was in terrible shape. Right. And it would have been – we, we love living in East Lansing, but it would have been an absolute no-brainer if there was a big, beautiful new school building there yeah. that we could send our kids to on day one. And that's going to be the reality for us now and for anybody else who visits our community
0: into the future. Outside of the uh, law school election, what, <laughs> um, you know, r- running for school board in, in East Lansing isn't super small. What's a general typical day for you on the campaign trail when you were running? Like you, you're, you're married – You have a son. You have a full-time job.
1: Yes. Um, You're right. People in East Lansing take education very seriously because it's an extremely well-educated community. The university has an outsized impact on the lives of the people there. So when I filed to run, I decided that I was going to have to burn the candle at both ends,
0: like you suggest.
1: But I also made a decision that I was going to sprint as hard as I could, but I wouldn't start until August 15th. Basically, I wanted to give people the summer to not think about the election and give myself that time. So I rested up last summer, and then I really did. I hit the ground running. I tried to knock on as many doors as I could. I believe I knocked on 2,000 doors. Yeah, that's great. And um, that was the estimate that I came up with. But all you need to know is that every Saturday and Sunday, even when there were good football games on, I was out knocking on doors. Right. And on a weeknight after work – if the sun was still out and it was a nice day, I would do it then too. I knocked in every community in every neighborhood in our community, and I participated in all the things that um, that a candidate would be expected to participate yeah. in: community events, the forums for the elected officials. The thing I didn't think about when I started that I think made a difference in the campaign was trying to get into more into some digital media, and I hadn't thought about that because I had never run for anything and. You talk to old timers in the community and they'll say, well, you got to send out X number of mailers. Mail
0: pieces, yeah. yeah, you got
1: you to gotta raise money to send out your mailers. And so this became a big deal to me. It's like, oh, I have to raise enough money to send two batches of mailers at different times in the electoral calendar. And so I did. And I was like, yeah, I raised the money. I got the mailers out. And they're good mailers. Yes. Yeah, right. you know, they were great mailers. But, but that doesn't reach the types of voters you're trying to get in East Lansing. And I was fortunate to have some money left over. And I start, started talking to a friend of mine who helped me get into some digital sources. And that I think that made a difference because sure in the two and three weeks before the election, when I was knocking on doors, people recognized my face. And right. that was the difference between the earlier phases of the campaign. And then we got closer to election day and I'd see people at church or I'd see people at the grocery store. They know who I was. They say, Oh, I saw your ad on the Lansing state journal. Yeah. You know? And so that was, that was good for me. I also spent more money than I expected. I would on graphic design. The funny thing about it was that I had sort of a a symbol that was identifiable. It was my name just written inside of a pencil, but it was a really identifiable symbol and I think that that graphic design helped me distinguish myself and separate myself from a really crowded field of candidates. You had a brand. Yeah, exactly. And so, and that was another thing that if you would ask me in July or August when I got started, right? You know, what do we need to do? I would graphic design would be the last
0: thing on my list. Running for office in – Governing is obviously two very different things. That's correct. Yes. Um, now that you're working with your colleagues on the board, um, and you have all these new schools that are being built and uh, and on their way to being operational, what are your goals for the remainder of your term?
1: Well, I think that that's a big piece is sort of the nuts and bolts of making sure that our new facilities are coming in, you know, on time, right. on budget. Those are that's that's what government is. Yeah. And so, and I think that when we talk about policy and we get lofty ideas, which we need to have, sometimes we forget that government really is about managing the day-to-day. And so that's an important piece. When I think about my longer-term goals for the school district, there's two things that stand out to me. Okay. And the first is that I think we need to really, as a district, make a commitment to academic rigor and academic excellence. I've talked to so many parents in our community and they say things like, well, East Lansing, say say they, they believe their kid is a really high achieving kid. Yeah. They'll say East Lansing is really good for the... Kids that are in the middle and the kids that are lower performers, yeah. But not for my kid. There's not. There are these obstacles in the way so that my kid can't take the most advanced classes. Frankly, I don't. I don't believe that all the time because I know we offer more AP classes than just about any district in the state. Right. We offer all of the AP classes. We have partnerships with LCC and MSU. But if a parent identifies an obstacle to their kid getting the highest quality education, why the heck not get it out of the way? That's what I think of. And then I'll talk to a kid who, a parent whose kid is kind of in the middle of the pack. And they'll say, well, there's not enough opportunities for my kid to have relationships with the teachers in the school. So for that kid, I'm thinking, well, we need to do more for for that person and remove that obstacle. Maybe it's through smaller class sizes. Right? Maybe it's forming a relationship with that kid so you know exactly what it is that motivates them what their interests are sure because i don't know that i ever really would have been good at math as a kid until i started following baseball you know it was right. just the, right. the, the
0: stats yeah. in baseball right that's, incre- and, yeah, that's interesting
1: and so when i say so when i say like academic excellence academic rigor i think we really need to look at our population and it's a school it's a school district that's small enough where we can say What are we doing for these kids that fall into this range? What are we doing for these other kids that have a different set of needs and have targeted approaches to make sure that when we talk to those parents in the future, they're not talking about obstacles, but they're talking about the new opportunities we've created. The other thing that stands out to me is related. And um, and it's something that unfortunately I've encountered for as long as I've been involved with education, which is going on 20 years now, which is... And if we count actually going to school, then um, my whole life. Your whole life. (laughs) Yeah, but um, there's a a gap. There's an achievement gap or an opportunity gap, whatever you want to call it. Kids that come from a certain socioeconomic background achieve at a different level from kids in a different background. And we see it everywhere. East Lansing has great schools. We have very diverse schools. We have kids – from Eastlands, but we also have kids from all over the region right. who choose to come into our right. schools. And when I see numbers that reflect different groups achieving at different levels, it's it's stunning. It makes me think we need to do more for the kids that are coming from low, lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Right. And that's a hard thing to do. And I know that from firsthand experience because I used to teach in a school that was 100% free and reduced lunch. Right, So I know the challenges, but we've let them into our walls. We're, we're all in this together, yeah. and I think that we need to do more to uh, to address that gap. I think that we're on the right path right now, but we need to do more to make sure that we're delivering a high-quality education to everybody and that when you leave our school, whether it's after a year or 13, you're in a better position than when you came in.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, you know I hear my wife talk about this issue all the time. Yeah. So, and and a lot of it is kids that come from low income families are getting far and away less academic support at home because their parents are working longer for less money and are there's less attention, frankly, priority to put on this other thing. Um, and the expectation is, I'm putting food on the table. You're you are educating my kid. There's a gap there too. Um, Certainly, I think and. It's- And it's not, there's not an easy fix in lots of places.
1: Yeah. And so to that end, I think that the most important thing we can do as a school is create an environment where people want to be. Yeah. And we can't control what happens at home. We can't control what happens on Friday night when we're out with our, when kids are out with their friends. But we can control what happens, you know, within the walls of our schools. Yeah. We can offer quality before school and after school programs. We can have great clubs and athletic teams that keep kids engaged at a different level. Because I believe that if you engage kids in sports or the robotics club or whatever it is, the destination imagination, then they're going to have that additional connection to school beyond just sitting through math and science class. And so I would be really hesitant to do anything to remove those programs. And I think we need to do more to build those kinds of programs up. Sure. and we also need to focus on offering students an opportunity to learn in smaller settings so smaller class sizes and making sure we have teachers that reflect what our student body looks like right uh, there is a real effort that that the board has been great leaders on to hire a diverse faculty yeah hire faculty from different you know different parts of the country different economic backgrounds whatever it means right and so I, I I support that, and we're going in that direction because these are the things
0: that lead to relationships, and relationships for most kids lead to better educational outcomes. No question, yeah. I mean, there was an example of uh, a school in the Lansing district where for the first two weeks of class there were I'm not kidding you seventy kids in a class where they didn't there wasn't a, they didn't they couldn't teach in the classroom they had to go to the auditorium to teach these kids. <laughs> So, I mean, there, there's an example of just like this isn't going to work. Like you can't give <laughs> yeah. real attention to to, to kids um, when you're, you know, when you're trying to get through roll call and there's 70 people. It um, barely
1: works in a college lecture hall, right? But I
0: think to your point, you're right. I mean, building up programs in schools and giving kids more opportunities to want to be there um, is a is a wonderful ideal to to strive for. As we as we wind it down, um, you're a relatively young guy, and you are. You know, you're getting a taste of governing, and while you've only been doing it for a few months, what are your goals in terms of just electoral politics moving forward?
1: You know, I don't, I don't really know, but I think that I want to stay involved. People always talk about all the headaches of being involved in a, in a campaign. Yeah, I loved it.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed it. You have to, if you want to succeed, you have to really yeah. like
1: it. And so I, I foresee many more campaigns in the future. I'm really happy on the school board. I think I'll do that for a while. Yeah, but if. uh yeah. If there are other opportunities, I would certainly look into them. I think that in the area that I live in, in East Lansing, we have great leadership. Yeah. There's a really strong group in the city government and all of our county officials and our uh, statewide elected officials. I, I like them all a lot. Yeah. I, I, there's, I don't know that there's a single person in the group that I would say I I disagree with them or they would be Better off doing something else. Sure. So I'm happy with the people that are in power right now, and if there was opportunities to serve down the road, I think that I would
0: I would pursue them. Final question: Who do you see going farther in the NCAA tournament, Michigan <laughs> or Michigan State? Whoa, yeah, I'm a Michigan State fan. Uh, we
1: and I know that I know that that's gonna that's tough for you because you support the guys in maize and blue. By the way, <laughs> yeah. But the real question is going to be. I think there's a scenario where Virginia could play Michigan State, and they've already and in, so because I yeah because I went to Virginia and mm-hmm. my wife has all of her degrees from Virginia right so I think I'll cheer for Michigan State. I don't know who, who she'll cheer for.
0: You would cheer for, cheer for Michigan State in in the championship over Absolutely. Virginia. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I've spoken like a true politician. In East
1: <laughs> well, that's one of the things we love about living in East Lansing is the connection to the university. When we were at Virginia. This was in the very early days of the Tony Bennett era. Yeah. They weren't that good at basketball. Right. You could go to basketball games because nobody wanted to go. Yeah. He's built them uh, into. Now they are a legit powerhouse. and They're right. doing great. And they're fun. It's fun to follow them. It's fun to watch. i never had the connection to Virginia athletics. Right. When I was living in Charlottesville that I do to Michigan State athletics. I have a friend who actually was my campaign manager. Yeah. Uh, his name is Brandon Vanderhyde. He's a communications professor at MSU, and he's also an alum of MSU. So during the football season, we have these tailgate parties where we invite all of our friends, and all of our friends meet the same – like we're all in our – 30s and early 40s, and we have little kids, and so <laughs> these parties are. And I know you know a lot of people who have attended these right. parties, but um, they are the most fun because there's something for the adults to do and there's something for the kids to do, and we're all there to support. Yeah, cornhole, state. they can the kids, can, <laughs> yeah, can throw the beanbags around, and we do it on the field. I think it's called Adams Field, yeah, where the band warms up. That's the highlight for a lot of the younger kids, right? Is watching the band warm up, play the Star Spangled Banner, play the Michigan State Fight song. They love it. And then the band will line up in a formation and they'll march over the bridge, to the stadium. eventually into the stadium. Yeah. And so it's this whole production where we watch the kids watch the band warm up. Then we run to the bridge and watch this little mini parade into the stadium. Uh, it, it has been so much fun and I've been lucky enough to do it basically since we moved here. every week, Every weekend in the fall. And it's kind of solidified that connection to the university. Well, on that note
0: I will just say go blue. <laughs> Chris, thanks for joining us on Ticket Splitters. Yeah. All right. Thank you. All right, take care.